Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, March 10th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. Daily vaccination totals here in the United States continuing to increase as the number of COVID-19 hospitalizations is on the decline. A historic coronavirus relief bill will likely clear the House today. If approved, the package, an economic lifeline for millions of Americans, will then head to the Oval Office for President Biden's signature. And the White House is saying there's no crisis at the border, but crossings into the U.S. are surging, while the number of unaccompanied minors in federal custody is growing. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin in Washington, where the House of Representatives is voting to approve President Biden's nearly $2 trillion relief package. That bill is one of the largest anti-poverty bills in modern history with direct assistance for lower and middle income families. It's also an early victory for the Biden administration arriving on the president's 50th day of being in office. Let's go to Edwin Pitti. He's in Washington, D.C. with the very latest developments. Edwin. Hi, Andrea, I can tell you the House continues debating President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief plan, and the final vote could come any moment now. Despite Republicans trying to delay their process and not supporting the bill at all, it's expected to pass. The package includes up to $1,400 stimulus checks for some Americans, extending unemployment benefits, and will send billions of dollars in aid to states and municipalities. Now, it could take some time for struggling Americans to see all the benefits included in the relief bill. The White House has not confirmed when exactly Biden could sign the bill, but just a week after he does, millions could start seeing their funds automatically deposited into their accounts. As far as unemployment, more than 11 million Americans are said to start seeing their benefits lapse this weekend. That's why Biden has made it clear that he wants to sign the bill as soon as it passes. But there is paperwork that will need to be finalized before the bill heads over to the White House. This will be a key moment in the ability of the current administration to negotiate with Republicans because there was no GOP support behind this bill and it could set a bad precedent for future negotiations. Live in Washington, D.C., Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for those details. Now turning to immigration, on Tuesday, the Justice Department asked the Supreme Court to dismiss a case concerning the controversial Trump-era public charge rule. The rule made it harder for immigrants to get legal status if they use public benefits like food stamps or Medicaid. In February, the high court agreed to hear a challenge to the rule brought by state and local officials and various other groups. But Tuesday's filing is an indication of how the new DOJ is changing positions now that Trump is out of office. President Biden has issued an executive order calling for the immediate review of the public charge rule. Meanwhile, the number of detained migrant children at the U.S. southern border has skyrocketed, according to recent reports, putting pressure on the Biden administration to find a humane solution to a growing problem that was the source of controversy during the previous administration. Janet Rodriguez has more. The number of unaccompanied minors being held at Border Patrol detention facilities along the Mexican border has tripled in the last two weeks. 
According to internal documents from the Department of Homeland Security, of the 3,200 kids at the detention facilities as of Monday, roughly 1,400 have been there for more than three days, the maximum allowed by federal law. The White House admitted that they haven't been transferred to shelters because the pandemic has limited the capacity of those facilities. DHS nor Border Patrol has confirmed the numbers either. They said in a statement that addressing the flow of unaccompanied children crossing our southern border is an important priority to the administration and DHS. Currently, health and human services shelters have only around 500 beds available to house the migrant children. The White House says they're also trying to expedite the process to release the children to family members or foster care. You just can't put children in jail. There is no other way around it. The government should have acted many weeks ago, and it is not possible that DHS, with billions of dollars in their budget, can act faster. 170 of the children currently in detention are under 13 years of age, according to the internal documents. Under the Joe Biden administration, unaccompanied minors detained at the border are not being deported, a change in policy from the prior administration. The CBP commissioner under President Trump has highly criticized the current handling of the border. President Biden yesterday seemed to ignore shouted questions as to whether he believes that there is a crisis at the southern border. For U News, Janet Rodriguez in Washington. Back on the streets of the nation's capital, about half of the nearly 5,000 National Guardsmen there will soon end their security detail around the U.S. Capitol. According to a Defense Department statement released Tuesday evening, more than 2,200 National Guardsmen will remain on duty through May 23rd. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin approved this request. The decision to reduce nearly half of the support came after a review of the request and after officials considered the potential impact. There has been tension in parts of Washington, D.C. following the siege on the U.S. Capitol on January 6. And as investigations continue into the deadly actions that day, the FBI is releasing new images from the night before the attack on the Capitol. Investigators are now asking for the public's help as they search for the suspect that left pipe bombs at the offices of the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee. The FBI releasing new video of the person suspected of planting those pipe bombs the night before the Capitol riot. The FBI officially confirming the pipe bombs placed at the Democratic and Republican National Committee headquarters could kill. These pipe bombs were viable devices that could have been detonated, resulting in serious injury or death. The video shows some of the suspect's movements. At 7.40 p.m., the suspect is seen walking along this residential street. Moments later, a person walking a dog passes by. By 7.52 p.m., the suspect has made it to DNC headquarters. The suspect sits down on a bench and appears to fumble with the backpack. A bomb is later discovered in the bush next to the bench. At 8.14 p.m., the same suspect walking down an alley next to RNC headquarters. A bomb placed there as well before exiting the area walking past the Capitol Hill Club. Since January 5th, you may have noticed changes in someone you know. It could be bragging about what they did while on Capitol Hill, following this story very closely, or exhibiting an unusual emotional response to the reporting of this story. 
The FBI also says the bombs apparently contained black powder. Investigators are also interested in finding out where the attached kitchen timers came from. Images of the suspect's Nikes were also released, hoping this may trigger more leads. I think the fact that we're unclear about um, what, you know, were the bombs supposed to go off that night? Was it supposed to be a diversionary tactic the next day? Just highlights the need for a 9-11 style commission. There were a, probably a significant number of participants in this that um, knew what they were doing, pre-planned it, brought with them um, the equipment they needed to um, do what they were attempting to do. All this happening as some lawmakers seek more security on Capitol Hill, a task force urging Congress to add hundreds of new police officers, create a quick reaction force, and install a new fencing system. The FBI and ATF are offering a $100,000 reward for information leading to the identification of the suspect in that video you just saw. Meanwhile, authorities continue making arrests. Another member of the Oath Keepers paramilitary group is now facing charges in connection to the siege. Joshua James is accused of dressing in tactical gear and acting as security detail at the Stop the Steal rally. Legislation to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act has been unveiled in the House of Representatives. The bill, which is supported by President Joe Biden, expired in 2018. The Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act of 2021 was introduced by Democratic representatives Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas and Jerry Nadler of New York, along with Republican Representative Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania. Fitzpatrick is the only member of the GOP to back this bill so far. Biden, who co-sponsored the legislation back in 1994 as a senator, says reauthorizing this law is a major priority for his presidency. And in a win for the labor movement, the House on Tuesday passed legislation that would reform labor laws and give workers more power to organize after decades of setbacks to unions. The Protecting the Right to Organize Act, also known as the PRO Act, was previously passed by the House in early 2020, but the Senate, then under Republican control, failed to take it up. The House passed it again Tuesday with a vote of 225 to 206, largely along party lines. The bill includes provisions to expand the definition of employee for the purpose of allowing independent contractors to join unions. It now faces what is likely to be opposition from Republicans in the Senate. And speaking of the Senate, when President Biden assembled his list of cabinet picks, he was aiming to select the most diverse and representative cabinet in America's history. But while some of his choices have sailed through their confirmation hearings, others have seen a rocky reception from the GOP. The final Senate confirmation of Merrick Garland for Attorney General is poised for today. Garland, a longtime federal judge and former federal prosecutor, is expected to win substantial bipartisan support. Marsha Fudge, meanwhile, has secured her nomination as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. More of you news after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. Your news covers the news of your world. It makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. The Biden administration announcing the purchase of millions more doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. This as Alaska becomes the first state to make vaccines available for all residents over the age of 16. Lorraine Gossides has the latest details. Reopening around the country continues in California, Los Angeles teachers unions and school officials striking a tentative deal to get kids back in classrooms next month and Disneyland now set to reopen at the end of April. In Texas, businesses officially back to full capacity today and wearing masks is no longer a state mandate. Nationwide cases are down this week by 11% according to the Washington Post and deaths down by 16%. But health officials are warning moving too fast can quickly put us back in the wrong path. We understand people's need to get back to normal and we are going in that direction. But when you start doing things like completely putting aside all public health measures as if you're turning a light switch off, that's quite risky. We don't want to see another surge and that's inviting one when you do that. Texas and California are among the states with the lowest rate of vaccinations. Alaska, New Mexico, West Virginia, South Dakota, and Hawaii steaming ahead with double-digit numbers. According to the CDC, more than 32 million people have been fully vaccinated so far, and over 50% of those are over the age of 65. Meanwhile, the president is expected to announce the purchase of an additional 100 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But but not yet a clear timeline on when those doses will become available. Officials with Walgreens say they've administered about 5 million vaccines in stores, clinics and long-term care facilities. But amid concerns that rural Americans who don't have access to big box stores won't get vaccinated, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announcing Tuesday it's looking to partner with Dollar General, one of the nation's largest retailers with more than 16,000 locations. That's about three times the number of locations as Walmart and more than half as many as CVS and Walgreens. Meanwhile, the airline industry pushing the White House to develop a digital vaccine passport that would enable passengers to bypass quarantines and show proof of negative COVID tests more easily. Uh, I know the state of Hawaii is considering just that. Um, if you're able to show you have uh, the test and the vaccine, they're going to eliminate the quarantine. Airlines do not plan to require passengers to get vaccinated, but cruise lines like Royal Caribbean have announced they are restarting cruises for vaccine-only guests. The first one set to sail from Israel in May. Meanwhile, the CDC announcing deaths have fallen to an average of 1,600 a day from 2,000, but still projecting the total death toll could reach 571,000 by April 3rd.
And when it comes to vaccinations, new data has found women tend to report more adverse side effects to the COVID-19 vaccine than men. According to the CDC and the FDA, more than 13 million vaccine doses were administered from mid-December through mid-January. Of those, nearly 7,000 adverse side effects like headaches and fatigue were reported. The CDC says about 79% of those were in women. Part of the reason could be more women receive the vaccine, but it could also be biological. A CDC researcher says studies suggest women have higher antibody responses than men to certain vaccines like influenza. And now to education and the pandemic. A new report found that enrollment at community colleges dropped by 10% in the fall compared to the previous year. But according to the Washington Post, enrollment at four-year colleges remains unchanged. Community colleges have long been a bedrock for lower-income students, many of whom are Black and Latino. And now higher education experts worry this drop could lead to an education gap between minority and white students. Joining me now to discuss all this is Madeline Pumariega. She's the president of Miami-Dade College. Madeline, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to U News. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. How has the pandemic affected enrollment at Miami-Dade College in particular? Well, as you said, in the fall term, we saw those enrollment declines consistent with the national numbers, probably slightly above about a 12% enrollment decline. This semester, the spring semester, was started in January, but we had a series of mini term semesters. That means students could start in January and February and March. We've been able to cut that down to about 6.5% uh, down in enrollment. And I think that you're absolutely right when we think of, about traditionally um, students of color, um, African-Americans, Hispanic students typically enroll in community college, colleges, often they're the first in their families to attend college. And we see that in our enrollment numbers as well. How are things being handled there? Meaning are students at your college back in the classroom or are they still attending classes remotely or is it a combination of both? It's a combination. Um, some of our students are in-person classes, especially those workforce programs, healthcare work programs, as well as others. We've got a series of online courses where a lot of the students are taking their classes online. But just this spring, um, we launched MDC Live, learning interactively in a virtual environment. That is, That means that students who traditionally would be in a class face-to-face -face at a certain time are now are meeting with their professors and their peers in an environment just like this, whether it's Zoom or Teams or any one of those. And that we heard back from our students that they really wanted to engage with each other and engage with our students. So we added uh, that teaching modality in addition to hybrid, where some come in person and others do their work virtually. I think that combination is very popular. Now, you became president of Miami-Dade College in November of last year, which was during the height of this pandemic. Now, you're also the first woman to lead the college, by the way. Congratulations for that. What has been the biggest challenge trying to bring students back or the biggest challenge overall? I think you're right to you know, um, become president in the middle of a, a pandemic. None of us have really led through a pandemic. I think the challenges you started with, it's really about enrollment 
how do we make sure that we can stabilize our enrollment, especially here at Miami-Dade College, about 50% of our funding uh, comes from state appropriations and that support from the state, but the other 50% comes from student tuition and fees. So you can see the correlation to having a budget impact when our enrollment is down. But I think more importantly, how do we help our communities recover? Uh, we are those workforce engines of our community, giving so many that opportunity. And so I think that one of the challenges when I think about enrollment declines is who aren't we reaching and how do we make sure that we're not leaving anyone behind as we position ourselves to recover from the pandemic and um, ensure that not only industry needs are met around workforce, but that we also have the talent to fill that with the students that we're training, especially in our workforce programs. Now, speaking of our local communities, what steps, in your opinion, can the federal government take to help community colleges and even its students? I think the, the federal government with the CARES Act um, has absolutely had the right approach in making sure that the funding that they provide through CARES or CARISA funding, a portion of it goes directly to students to help students. We so much appreciate that because um, most of our students are on federal financial aid or they come from low income homes where they have been financially impacted and in part why they may not be enrolling. So that's an important aspect. And then the other um, is to invest in our technology and infrastructure so that we can roll out those real time support services for our students, whether it's online tutoring, virtual advisement, uh, providing that extra support uh, for students to be successful, and then creating those certifications that lead to employment uh, based on those jobs that are starting to come back, especially here in the Miami-Dade County and the Miami area around technology and tech jobs. And before you go, President Biden proposed making tuition free for public college students of families under a certain annual income. This has been a little bit controversial. Some say, well, nothing comes free in life. What do you think of that proposal? What's your reaction to that? I think, look, it's a combination. We have the federal Pell Grant for students. And so we do have students that based on um, income eligibility um, are eligible for Pell Grants. And, and that certainly helps defray the cost or cover the cost of uh, tuition and fees, especially here in Florida and at Miami-Dade College, where we've kept our tuition and fees uh, relatively low to the rest of the country. I think the second is the support. Creating that college-going culture in a family is important. Free may not be enough to close the equity gaps that may exist. How do we make sure that it comes with those holistic supports and those guided pathways that students need to not only start college, finish, and then transfer on to a university or get that job that they're aiming to get through education? Well, thank you so much for your time today. Madeline Pumariega, president of Miami-Dade College. Take care, best of luck, and thank you for everything that you're doing there. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.